This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Mopac Audio. Hey, it's Jonathan, the executive producer of the Yuba County 5 podcast. And I wanted to say how grateful we are for the many listeners who've downloaded the show. And also to ask that if you're enjoying the series, to please leave a five-star rating and review. These are a huge help for others to learn about this baffling and disturbing mystery. One last note, the following episode contains descriptions of death and suicide, as well as outdated terminology that may be disturbing to some. Thanks again from everyone here at Mopac Audio. It was late fall 1978, outside Marysville, California. Kathy Madruga had just finished her shift at the forestry department and stopped in for a drink at her mother's bar, a popular roadside haunt called La Casa Blanca. The drive from work had been long, and Kathy needed to freshen up, so she ordered a beer and made a beeline for the bathroom. But just then, seated alone at the end of the bar, a familiar face practically stopped her in her tracks. (gasps) Behind shaggy, dark brown hair and thick, horn-rimmed glasses was the likeness of a man Kathy knew well. Gary? They locked eyes, and then he looked away. Kathy continued inside the bathroom, but his face was burned in her mind. She told herself it couldn't be him, but yet it looked just like him. When she walked back out, he was still there. Now Kathy was convinced. She had to tell her mother and rushed to find her. Mom, come quick, he's out there. What's going on? Who are you talking about? There was no time to waste. Kathy pulled her mother by the arm and virtually dragged her to where she had just been. See, he's right there. She pointed to the end of the bar where she had seen the man. He must have just left, come on. Kathy, wait. Kathy ran toward the entrance, her mother close behind, and darted into the parking lot, but there was no one there. Honey, what's happening? Mom, I swear it was him. I know what he looks like. Kathy, who are you talking about? Gary. I, I, I just saw Gary Mathias. They found Ted, emaciated to half his size, with enough of a growth of beard to indicate that he had survived for many, many weeks. He died. They cut the covers in around him and took his boots. I doubt if Madruga and Sterling were on their way back. I think they probably dropped out on the way up. But uh, Hewitt, Matthias, and Weir were up there. I said, I'm going to see what that damn dog was carrying. And that's when we both got out, and I said, look at here, that's a leg bone. 
I'm Shannon McGarvey. This chapter of the Yuba County Five story is probably one of the hardest. The details of Jack Hewitt Sr. discovering his own son's remains sound almost too heartbreakingly horrific to be true. No parent should have to endure that kind of pain. The only consolation, the only angle I can think of that might have brought some relief to the families was a sense of closure. At least those families could have answers, albeit tragic ones, even if the larger questions of what drove these men into the mountains continued to haunt them. But not every family walked away from the Daniels Inc. campground with some resolution. One family is still waiting to this day. And that lack of closure created a huge space in the story, a space that still exists. And that void had to be filled with something, be it fury or blame or wishful thinking or all three. After the body at Daniels Inc. campground was identified as Ted Weir on Monday, June 5th, there was a windfall of sudden and painful breaks in the case. First, on June 6th, when a Plumas County deputy discovered the remains of Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga, only seven miles south of the trailer. And then again on Wednesday, June 7th, when Jack Hewitt Sr. found the bones of his own son. Former Yuba County Undersheriff Jack Beecham watched it all unfold. I saw this happen. Where is, there was a leather jacket, apparently a body within that jacket. And Mr. Hewitt went over and picked up the jacket and the skeletal remains fell out minus the skull. Here's Jack Hewitt Sr. And then about 20 feet away, I found his pants with a billfold in it. You pull up the pants and pull out the wallet. And they said, this is my son. Tammy Phillips, Gary Mathias' sister, had just arrived back at the trailer and witnessed the aftermath of the discovery. We were coming back, I believe, at lunch is when we, Mr. Hewitt found his own son. And there was a lot of crying and screaming, and I cried too. I want to say that's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. I've seen a lot in law enforcement. We found down every bone except his skull. Every day was hard. I'm sorry. There are no words to describe the devastation Jack Hewitt Sr. must have felt in that moment. And for that intensely private experience to have played out in front of law enforcement, searchers, news reporters, and their photographers couldn't have been easy either. It was, oh God, I don't know how many reporters and cops come up there, you know, and try to start questioning me about it. They act like maybe I had something to do with it. I thought, boy, what a bunch of goddamn crazy sons of bitches they got around here. Ridiculous. Jack said the first reporter to approach him was a woman named Marianne Alonzo, who worked for a television news station in Sacramento. Seeing her first, and I said, I found my son, but I says, no pictures. Well, we always take pictures. I said, you take a picture of this, and I'll bust every damn camera you have. Marianne agreed to ease off and speak with her camera operator. I said, she better believe you talk. My wife's sitting at home watching this. Despite his threats, a photographer still stuck a camera in the Plumas County coroner's vehicle as it pulled away. Anyway, when he came up there, he put his camera in the car. I mean, it wasn't much to find, just bones and clothes. 
Jack's primary focus was protecting his wife, Sarah, who had been mired in a deep depression since the men had disappeared three months earlier. She'd even attempted suicide. It's hard to tell, because I called her from up there when I found him. And she was practically hysterical even when I got home an hour and a half later. Tom Hewitt remembers the day his mother learned Jackie's remains had been found. I just remember coming home and how it was then. It was like, I don't know, my mom was almost like she was done with life. The day I found him, she said, I've never seen anybody as determined as you was. Jack Sr. was incredibly determined and had never missed a day with search teams in the field. Even after most of Jackie's remains were found, Jack Sr. went back up to the Daniels Inc. campground to continue searching. We went up there, and I parked in the same place. I seen something white coming out of a culvert, and it was his skull. My wife almost come unglued, boy. The skull of Jackie Hewitt was located approximately 100 yards below where his clothing had been found just days prior. Jack called Sarah to let her know. I hadn't smoked a cigarette in two years. The day I found his skull, I smoked two packs. Took me another 10 years to quit. And my wife is the same way, she quit. She never did actually, but she wanted me to think she did. She kind of shut down a lot. It took a while for her to come out of it before we started doing things as a family again. I know that her and my dad, they were always together. They were like inseparable, you know? And then my mom, she just didn't want to do anything for the longest time afterwards. What happened to Sarah and the Hewitts after their son's death is a common thread among families in this story. For the Sterling family, finding Bill's remains was just the beginning of a series of tragedies that would span over two decades and claim the lives of three immediate relatives. Kathy Madruga says her family suffered similar devastation in the months and years after her uncle died. After this incident, my brother Rick was in a car accident, and this is the result of it, brainstem damage. Then our father died. Right, This is all right after Doc. You know, of course, Grandma died after Doc. Melba Madruga passed away in November 1978, just five months after the discovery of her son's remains. Her final months were consumed by sadness. Melba's granddaughter, Valerie Atia, says her grandmother died of a broken heart. I think part of her just gave up. She wasn't that old in terms of years. I think she was old in terms of life. Valerie says her grandmother felt that death would be the only way she would find peace. When my grandmother was preparing to pass, that was one of the things that she said was that now she would know what happened to Doc. For the Weir family, losing Ted was especially hard for his mother, Imogene. Here's Ted's nephew, Dallas Weir Jr. She grew up in poverty and knew hardships and loss, but losing one of her own children, that was very, very tough. Dallas says his family's faith in God helped see them through. I believe her, her faith in God never wavered that I know of. I never saw it. Her words to us was, we just have to know that he's in the hands of Jesus. Whereas the Weir family found peace in their faith, the Matthias family continued to wait for answers because there was still no trace of Gary. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Back in the Daniel Zink area, Searchers were hopeful that Gary's body might be found similar to the remains of Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt along the network of canyon roads leading to the forestry trailer. Again, here's author Tony Wright. And so you begin to sort of piece together a map from the trailer to the areas where Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt are found. Then their next step is, okay, where are we gonna find Gary Mathias? But searchers had scoured and scoured again miles of dense forest around the Daniel Zink campground and still hadn't found any significant trace of Matthias outside of his shoes. Officials like Undersheriff Jack Beecham were beginning to pursue the idea Gary might be found somewhere beyond the reach of search teams. There was an extensive ground search all the way and then back down and no sign of Gary whatsoever. Gary was known to have traveled prolific distances by foot and considering those stories, is it plausible he could have made it out of the Daniel Zink area, if not the mountains or even the state? But if that were the case, searchers would have been faced with an exponentially larger, if not impossible, search area, and also a near impossible chance of ever finding him. We figured that if Gary went out of those heavy snow drifts, he probably had gone down, and I remember that thought was expressed. It's incredibly difficult, according to some of the people I've talked to, just to look for a body up in those hills. It's the proverbial needle in the haystack. Some theorized if Gary wasn't buried beneath a deep snowdrift, then he might be entangled in dense vegetation. The area where the Daniel Zink campground is located was overrun with greenleaf manzanita. These shrubs aren't very big, but their thorny, spindly red branches are nearly impossible to trek through. When we were up that trailer, there was just heavy manzanita up around all sides of it. I mean, thick. I don't know how they got in there. Or if somebody tried to get out or they fell into that manzanita, they would have never been found. At this point, evidence had placed Gary Mathias at the forestry trailer with Ted Weir. And based on the close proximity of Jackie Hewitt's remains, authorities felt confident he had been there too. One of the theories officials landed on was that the three men arrived at the trailer together, but based on the shoes and sea rations found, that Gary Mathias didn't stay long. Just where he went was anyone's guess. He wasn't there too long after they arrived there. Maybe, you know, he was going for help. He said, we'll see you later, I'm going for help. Let me have your shoes. He just never made it. Tammy Phillips, Gary's sister, agrees with this theory. I believe my brother Gary was there to help. I believe that he stayed there for as long as he could. 
as does Gary Mathias's niece, Jess Smith. A lot of people in my family believe maybe my uncle was there helping to take care of him and left to go get help and then was never found. Once Gary left the trailer, there were clues found that suggested Jackie and Ted may have stayed there for an extended period of time. Here's author Drew Beeson. Somebody must have been taking care of Ted Weir in that trailer because it said that he would have been in so much pain from his feet in the condition they were in that he probably couldn't even move. And I think when Ted started losing his toes, he probably told Jackie, you better go back and get some help. Jack Hewitt believed his son likely backtracked on the route he took to the trailer, a path cleared by a Forest Service snowcat the day before the group disappeared. Because he went back the same goddamn way he went in there. And as for the toes, Ted Weir only lost five. Jack Sr. claimed he saw the remains of 11 toes on the floor of the trailer. If accurate, that horrifying detail may hold the answer to how long Jackie stayed with Ted. Emergency medical physician David Saintsing explains how extremities can fall off after acute frostbite sets in. So frostbite really is a form of cold injury. As fluid starts to get cold in the body and, you know, there is blood, which is mostly water, but there are other types of fluids that exist that are not blood. Those outside of the cell fluids can start to freeze. And as that happens, you start to develop the pain and discomfort of frostbite. Dr. St. Singh says the process could have been slowed by the blood flow generated by hiking 12 miles up the steep mountain. But after reaching the forestry trailer, the men would have likely faced a host of new challenges. There may have been less movement once they got to that point. Perhaps they tried to hunker down and hope someone would come rescue them, so there's probably less heat production. And then they probably started to deal with more legitimate frostbite and evolving towards dead tissue and necrosis. Necrosis, or tissue death, caused by acute frostbite, develops after a cell freezes, ruptures, and dies. It wouldn't take weeks to develop necrosis, but it would likely take many weeks for the toe to completely fall off. This necrotic end stage frostbite with black leathery looking tissue is dry gangrene. Dry gangrene, as opposed to the more commonly known wet gangrene, usually does not cause death, and its progression typically takes weeks or months before the tissue, or in this case the toe, falls off. This timeline correlates with how long the medical examiner estimated Ted Weir had survived in the trailer. The number of toes obviously fits with another being in that setting that probably was dealing with something very similar. It would have been just daily torture. If there were actually 11 toes found inside the trailer, and some of them belonged to Jackie, then how could he have endured the walk to where his remains were found? Dr. Saintsing says once the tissue dies, so do the nerve endings and the pain. You don't feel that as much because the nerve endings are not functional. Those nerve endings are dead. They're in terrible shape and they're in trouble, but they often are not having a lot of pain. But why did Jackie leave the safety of the trailer in the first place? In several newspaper reports at the time, Plumas County Deputy Dennis Forcino theorized that when Ted died, Jackie became, quote, confused and horrified and fled into the woods. I think that my brother was there with him. And when Ted finally did pass away, my brother wrapped him up in sheets and decided to go see if he could find somebody. I think he got there, sort of the road turned, and he probably just 
was so goddamn cold he went to sleep and froze to death. They just said that it was due to the weather, you know, froze to death. Although the coroner was unable to determine Jackie's exact cause of death, similar to the other three men, it was noted that exposure was likely the culprit. Autopsies also revealed none of the remains of the four men indicated any signs of foul play. But this didn't sit well with some family members, like Tom Hewitt. I mean, at first, there was suspected foul play, but then that got ruled out. Why? Who knows? But it's important to note that just because foul play had been ruled out, culpability as to who or what drove them into the mountains was still yet to be determined. And the longer Gary Mathias remained missing, the more investigators, the media, and even other family members began questioning his role in the group's disappearance. Again, here's George Madruga. Well, all along, I've thought Gary Mathias was the key to this whole thing. Former Washington Post reporter Cynthia Gorney also theorized about Gary's involvement in the group's disappearance. Because he did not have an intellectual disability and because he was on schizophrenia medication, the only thing that to me made any sense was that Gary had had some kind of a break, some kind of an episode. But Gary's family always maintained the symptoms of his schizophrenia were under control. Here's Tammy Phillips. It was a good couple of years before they disappeared. He was on this medicine and he was doing good. Gary seemed fine. Gary's niece, Jess Smith, isn't buying it either. I find it hard to believe that it was like a mental health breakdown, so to speak, because it still doesn't make any sense that he was never found. As much as everyone wanted to find out what happened to Gary, despite mounting speculation, there was only so much law enforcement could do, and for only so long. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Morgan Rector host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. How much longer are you going to continue the search? This is an excerpt from an interview between KCRA Sacramento News 13 reporter Manuel Ramos and Plumas County Deputy Dennis Forcino, who led the search efforts in the Daniel Zink area. Until we find the rest of them, or until there's no hope. 
For families, hope was essential to their emotional survival. But for investigators, at that stage in the game, hope only seemed to further obscure the reality of the situation, which was that they probably weren't going to find the body of Gary Mathias, or beyond that, any meaningful answers. Around mid-June, as the last leg of the search neared its end, news coverage of the case began to shift from finding the still-missing Gary Mathias to simply finding out what had happened and who, if anyone, was responsible. Here's Tony Wright. What we understand from reviewing the case files, they continued on the search for Matthias through June, but by some point they had given up on trying to find him. I believe it was another day or two of looking and then they just called it off. They just said, no, we're not gonna do any more searching. And that was the end of it. And we sat back for 40 years and waited. By Sunday, June 19th, two weeks after investigators first landed at the Daniels Inc. campground, the search for Gary Mathias was officially called off. He was presumed dead, even if there was no hard evidence to prove it. And what's driving that is the fact that if Gary Mathias were alive and he's not taking his medication, he would just pop up somewhere somehow. Based on Gary's past run-ins with law enforcement, and struggles controlling the symptoms of his schizophrenia. If he had somehow survived, it would have likely been really hard for him to stay under the radar. So in this situation of being lost in the Plumas National Forest, not having access to his medication, if he had survived, he would have encountered someone, and some way, somehow, they would have said, hey, we found Gary Mathias. Officials like Yuba County Captain of Detectives Avery Blankenship theorized he had to be dead. Matthias perished shot in the woods, no question about it. And as painful as that reality was to accept, Gary's sister Tammy believes it is likely true. I don't think it would have took Gary years to come home. It would have been more like months. If Gary was alive, he would have come home in months. And because Gary never did come home, Tammy thinks it's because Yuba County didn't do enough to find him. If Gary didn't make it, he's on the mountain right where the boys were. They just didn't take the time to go look. But Gary's niece, Jess Smith, thinks it may be more complicated than that. I feel that my family, of course, felt like they didn't take it seriously, or maybe seriously enough, or maybe we all would feel that way if we still had someone that was missing, regardless of how much time and effort people put in. Between February and June of 1978, Yuba County investigators put in 6,000 hours of work. And that's not even counting the hours put in from Butte, Plumas, and Sutter counties, as well as volunteer and off-the-clock efforts. But like Jess said, would it have ever been enough for the Matthias family while Gary was still out there missing? And because Gary's body was never recovered, Tammy and her family never got that piece of closure. They don't even have a grave to visit. I had my husband drive me up there every year on the anniversary and take me to the ranger station. And I would put off my flowers and I'd talk, say a little eulogy to him, and and then I'd go home and wait for the next year. As it would be hard for anyone to lose a sibling or lose someone very close to them, I think it's different when they've disappeared because you hold that hope that you're always gonna find them, you're always gonna see them, what happened, that sort of thing. 
Jess believes her mother Sharon's death was in part due to her uncle's disappearance. Sharon was Gary's younger sister. My mom passed away in 2002 and she took her life. She was diagnosed bipolar, which is highs and lows. And at times when she wasn't taking her medicine toward the end before she passed away, she thought people were chasing her or like coming after her. And I feel like that had to do with my uncle because somebody got him, somebody's gonna get her. Jess says all she and her family want is to know what happened to Gary. We may not find him, but if we find more answers for my family to bring some kind of closure to this, for people to understand maybe a little bit more of what schizophrenia is, to not point fingers at him. I mean, he lost his life here. I believe that. How, I don't know, or why, I don't know. What should have ended when law enforcement declared Gary Mathias presumed dead in June of 78, ironically birthed the idea that he might somehow still be alive. I had an experience, and I know I seen Matthias after the bodies were found. And I feel in my heart, I am saying the truth. I did not imagine it. I'm not making it up. Kathy Madruga had a very strange experience in the fall of 1978, a few months after the search for Gary was called off. Author Drew Beeson featured the story in his 2020 book about the case. There's a very credible account of Gary being seen at a bar after the date that all the bodies were found. So that's extremely eye-opening if that account is true. Kathy said she saw Gary at La Casa Blanca, a bar owned by her mother. I went in and used the restroom. I came out of the restroom and went behind the bar. There was living quarters back there. Kathy was looking for her mom. Mom and Bill, that was her significant other at the time. I said, Gary Mathias is sitting out there. And they said, what? Are you sure? And I said, yes. Kathy says Bill called the sheriff's department while she and her mom went to find Gary. We both went running after him to get him, and this guy took off. The man Kathy saw had seemingly disappeared. I said, Mom, I swear to God it was him. I know him. I know who he is. It's unknown what the police told Bill when he called them. But Kathy says she eventually ended up meeting with Yuba County Deputy Lance Ayers, the only remaining investigator on the case. I told him what I saw, and they gave me pictures, different photos, and they wanted to see if I could pick out Matthias out of any of them. There was like one of the regular Gary and the other one with Gary with longer hair, just to make him look different. With glasses, without glasses, a beard, a mustache, long hair, da-da-da, you know, different pictures. And I nailed it every time. I said, I know who I saw. I know this guy. Then, Kathy says, Deputy Ayers told her something surprising. I was also informed that I was not the only one that had seen him. He had been seen at Montgomery Ward. He had been seen at Jenny's restaurant. I saw him one more time after that at 7-Eleven. And that's all I know. It's a lot to process, I can understand, for the families. I know, looking through the police report, there's probably one or two people that thought they saw him. In my 50 years of law enforcement, I think anything is possible, and I think it's possible Gary could still be alive. You know, you never give up hope, but I think it's highly improbable. For the lawmen, there lies a bigger job ahead, trying to find the answer to the baffling question of what the men were doing here. Did they get here on their own, and why? Or were they brought here deliberately and left behind to die? 
All of the men were dead or presumed dead. And for many, for over 40 years, this was where the story ended, a tragedy in which five men just got lost in the woods. But someone or something had to have caused the men to inexplicably venture 60 miles off course and drive into the mountains. Someone or something had to make them abandon the safety of their vehicle and then instead of turning around, someone or something forced them to hike 12 miles further into the freezing wilderness only to die. So they got diverted for some reason that of course we don't know. So it had to be through manipulation or force. She kept telling me it was a preacher guy, and she went to meet with him at a bar. She went to shoot him. She went to kill him. The other four were driven by someone else, and they were forced out of the car at gunpoint, and then they all ran up the hill out of fear. I've always been of the theory that something happened. There was some sort of fear of someone, fear of something. I think he may have lived through all of this. If you like the Yuba County 5 podcast, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Mopac Audio also has two other podcasts you might like, Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, and An Absurd Result. Follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream. Find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Yuba Podcast. That's at Yuba Podcast. Or online at yubapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This has been a Mopac Audio production. Our executive producers are Jonathan Nauzardin and Jonathan Beal. Chris Moss is supervising producer. Julian Singleton is our research and archival coordinator. And I'm Shannon McGarvey, writer and senior producer. Editing and music by Blake Maples. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Thank you.